namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa puttang dhammang sankhang namasami so it's the super moon of november we have these very formal gatherings monastic life has some times of formal ritual, kind of religious theater in some way. And uh, then we have more casual times. And, and these formal rituals that we perform are, are I quite like them, because they bring a kind, of, a, a kind of seriousness to our life, and also a kind of choreography, which I find very uh, beautiful. And uh, it creates a sense of, of a group. We're not just sort of a bunch of individuals coming in and doing our anapanasati or metta bhavana or whatever it might be, but we're also a, a group of beings who aspire to the same things and uh, have a similar kind of faith, and we're supporting each other in that. And this is a, one of the ways that we can do that. And so the eight precepts are the standard formula that is used for uh, monastic life for lay people. And, Earlier, the bhikkhus did the uh, Patimoka, Venerable Chunda has been chanting the Patimoka Alvasa, very diligent, and that's a considerable piece of memory work. And so every fortnight we do this, and uh, we're, we're always reminded of our aspiration, of our intention, and we need reminders, don't we? Because the big problems is we just forget, we get busy with life, or get sloppy, or, or get careless, or... Or whatever, so to constantly be reminded and to bring the mind to a sense of uplift, a sense of inspiration, a sense of aspiration. These are these are good things, uh, and I, that's why I I must admit I appreciate the formality, the formal structures, not as absolutes, but as kind of helpful part of the uh, Theravada vehicle. Obviously, it works for me because I've been at it for a while, so I'm I'm an enthusiast. <laughs> And I continue to be. I'm amazed. I was talking earlier with uh, Venerable Kema before before the meeting about the use of perceptions and how Theravada Buddhism very much uh, encourages the skillful enactment and um, the continual refreshing of that which is skillful in our lives through the act of of contemplating the whole nature of how perception works in our in our experience say if a man is a, is a misogynist and he sees a woman driving and he says woman driver it's not just a gender definition isn't it it's a perception a very negative perception of this being who is driving the car even though the person might not know the man might not know the woman who is driving that's a perception isn't it? based upon misogynism uh, and that's obviously a very unskillful and cruel kind of perception to carry around uh, because it, it's inflicted on others and it creates uh, suffering in man's mind where someone else has a perception of uh, negative perception about Muslims and so he sees uh, a woman in a uh, wearing a 
burqa or something like that, and then there's a, a whole the visual perception is not just as someone of a different religion, but it's very negative, right? it's racist, or in some way tinted by that bias, by that perception. And so in both cases, you can see the person might, the man or the woman might not know who they're even looking at or, or who the other person is, but they're interpreting life now in a way from those uh, biases and, and prejudices. And if one doesn't see that, then one is simply a victim, cultural victim, uh, of, of, or familial conditioning, whatever, whatever the conditioning is, that one is a victim of that and doesn't see life in any kind of clear, clear way, and is suffering. So perception is, is obviously very important, and perception is oftentimes just neutral. Um, this is a clock, this is a book, that's water. Um, the door for the monks is there, the door for the lay people is there. These are simply neutral, functional perceptions. If we didn't have those, we'd have Alzheimer's or something. You know, we wouldn't be able to function. So it's necessary. Perceptions are necessary. Um, and we can also be the victims of habitual perceptions which have been programmed into us for various reasons which are unskillful. So let's say perceptions of... Um, so I cited like racism or misogynism or something like that, or let's say uh, let's say I have a a negative view of my nose, <laughs> and every time I look in the mirror, I say, "You've got a big schnozzle over there, mate. You, your nose is too big. Your nose is too big. Your nose is too big." Each time I look at myself in the mirror, what's that going to do to the mind? It's a perception. Too big. Uh, my nose is too big. And maybe someone said that to me 30 years ago, and I believed it. <laughs> and so for 30 years, every time I look in the mirror, I have this self-critical put-down of my nose. It's not much, but it's, it's a lot of suffering, actually, just, just from a visual image. And because someone didn't like me and told me my nose was too big. And that's yeah, a silly example, but that can be quite prevalent in our in the way we regard ourselves as, as being inadequate in some way or not not up to the mark or too big or too small or all the rest of the ways we can uh, hold perceptions which are unkind and unskillful and and uh, a kind of inner cruelty or inner inner tyranny and these can come up so quick and be so so dominant that we don't even notice we just think yeah yeah my nose is too big much much too big I do a Michael Jackson on my nose or something. <laughs> and that's sad, isn't it? That people kind of suffer uh, in, in these various ways. And we also have good ways of interpreting life just through the goodness of our lives. So I see an old person and they're having difficulty across the street. I realize that's an old person. That person's going to have difficulty getting across the traffic because the light isn't very long. Now, that's a perception too. I see old, old perception, but maybe that perception of the old person is also um, informed by compassion and kindness and generosity. And so I do something, I act on that perception in a good way. And obviously that is a much more joyous kind of perception than the misogynist or the racist. Um, and, and we have, maybe not, our perceptions aren't so blatantly negative, negative. 
But we do have that, don't we? We have like perceptions which are skillful and and helpful and 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 uplifting, and then perceptions which are um, opinions and views which are kind of enervating and tiring and, and and negative. And that that's why our path is one of self understanding. We have to understand our own conditioning and. and uh, no one can do it for us. We can have a kind of general teaching, but no one can really do that for us. So the capacity to listen to oneself is very important. The capacity to hear one's own thinking. The capacity to see one's own per- in perceptions as being, well, that's just an opinion, Viradhamma. That's just a perception. So I look at my nose in the mirror. <laughs> I don't do this, by the way. <laughs> but I look at my nose in the mirror, and maybe that comes up. Too big. And if I if I know that perception and I hold it, I just look at just this before I make any interpretation about it. It just is as it is. It's just a reflection in the mirror. It doesn't have to be negative or positive. And that's a skill, isn't it? Where I actually hear hear my own mind, hear my own perceptions, see where they're going, and I and I have enough circumspection to look at that and, and what's going on here? You know, how, how is my mind conditioned, and how am I? Am I thinking and, and, and interpreting life? So when we say take these eight precepts, there are ways of kind of interpreting life in, in, in a monastery. So I undertake the precept to not intentionally take the life of any living creature is a way of looking at life, isn't it? So the hunters are out trying to get the deer. The deer were hanging out here today. And I was saying, don't go out there. Uh, say the perception of, of, of an animal being sentient, an animal suffering pain, an animal uh, that wants to live like I want to live. That's the way of perceiving things. Uh, the perception of, of uh, an animal being food for the family, that's a perception too, and both are true. So what happens when we perceive things in, in a way of... of um, that we cherish life. You know, this 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 being wants to live as I want to live. This being wants its young to survive. Um, this being wants to procreate. Whatever. What happens when I do that? Well, my regard for the world is one from compassion, and that is a different one than this being is in my way. I'm going to kill it. And this being this being's cute, so I'll preserve it. But these other ones are, are for my use, where, where life becomes somehow my personal property. I can do what I want with it. Well, that's one way to live. But the Buddha's suggestion is, well, there's, there's this kind of profound way to live where we bring up perceptions of, of deep compassion and deep caring for all sentient beings. And if you think about Buddhist standard of morality, it's kind of this very altruistic morality, isn't it? Where when the metta chant, we chant that my regard for all beings is the same as a mother's regard for her only child. I've all, you know, I quote that constantly. It's just a stunning in in human culture. What a what a what a perception to to make important in a in a culture that all beings that I I, I regard all beings as a mother regards her only child with the same sense of care. It's impossible to do. That's <laughs> so high. But to actually keep that as a perception, what, what happens to the mind? Well, the mind of disregard, the, the mind of cruelty, or the mind of uh, putting down or 
negating someone is very much uh, mirrored by this higher perception, this very altruistic perception. And so that if my mind is tending towards a kind of alienating perception that this person isn't up to the mark or or that person is whatever, and they say, is that the way a mother would regard her only child? Not really. And then I see that more clearly. I see this perception of, of put down or cruelty or, or, or judging all the time or negativity. I, I see that as an object of mind. And that's important. Because now I can see, oh yeah, that's something that I'm creating. That's something my mind's creating. And I can make a choice. I can make a choice to move to a different kind of perception. And so there's a, there's a as, as we were saying with Venerable Kema, there's, a, there's this need to be very uh, active in, in the way we, we interpret life, to take perceptions and activate them, to, to bring these deep meanings into a kind of constancy with the way we live our lives, rather than it just being something, well, that's a nice one, isn't it? Those Buddhists are really neat, but never do anything about it, or never actually bring that perception to mind. So in, in, in monastic life, say, like one of the perceptions we have is the, which we all know, the perception on, on the four requisites, that the, the basic needs of a, a monastic is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, basic, and, and just enough, just enough to survive. And to, to make that perception active means that each time, say, each time we take food, uh, we try to bring that up into mind. The, this food is offered by the laity. It's offered with generosity. I'm an alms mendicant. I'm totally dependent on the lay people. This food is just medicine to take me through for the day. Now that perception, if it's done again and again and again in an active way, creates a lot of both gratitude and contentment. Whereas maybe the habitual perception is one I want different, I want more, I want other, I want a different recipe, there's too much of this, there's not enough of that, it's not balanced, I, you know, I want less carbs, I want more protein, and, and all the rest of it you can get into. And that's, that's a, you know, there's validity in diet, but that kind of mind quite often is very preferential and, and, and unhappy, because its perceptions are based upon conditioning around diet. Not to dismiss that. And you can see how, if I bring up perceptions of, of contentment with little sanctity, I do that again and again and again, uh, sincerely, not just as a kind of parroting, but I do that sincerely, then any discontent that I manifest around the requisites, I'm going to see that more clearly. And if I'm sincere, I'll also start to abandon it. And what happens if I do that? If I abandon the um, demanding nature of my material life, that kind of thing which always wants more or better or bigger or different, and then I abandon those and I pick up the one of contentment. It's good enough. It's good enough. Not 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 a kind of complacency, but yeah, it's good enough and I'm grateful for the alms food. Well, if I do that for 30, 40 years, mine has a lot of contentment, happiness. But if I just, you know, I agree to that as the kind of formula that monastics should be observing. I say, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. But I never do it. I never actually activate it. I never enunciate that in my mind as I'm looking at my food or I'm, I'm using the requisites of, of my monastic life. If I never reset to myself, I can just be in the old mode of complaining that it's not, not good enough, not sufficient. 
So this sense of, 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 of actually training in perception is a very important part of the Buddhist path. When we talk about when we talk about practice, right? This is kind of Buddhist catchword, huh? my practice, my practice, my practice. And sometimes we limit that that word to just some kind of meditative technique that we do, anapanasati or, or whatever. But it's much broader than that. You know, practice is you know, like in, integrating everything that it happens in the day uh, towards the wholesome and the abandonment, the un- unwholesome. Uh, so the way we interpret, the way we perceive, the way we think, uh, the way we use requisites, uh, just like uh, being frugal and, and uh, taking care of monastic property and taking care of the truck, taking care of the tools and picking up paper that's around the kind of objective world we live in. We're constantly applying principles of mindfulness and care. And that's something we have to remember to do. Bowing. We, when I, when I, we were talking about bowing, how bowing can become a perfunctory kind of activity, which I do too, but also it can oftentimes have deep meaning. When I stop, I look at the Buddha, I think, oh, thanks. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I bow with a kind of sincere sense of uh, devotion and gratitude. It's very powerful, very, very meaningful. And sure, you know, we can't maybe do that all the time, but to constantly see there is the bhavana, is this... Um, Activation or this, this this participation in life in, in in skill rather than just kind of going through the motions. The way we relate to each other, like Buddhist morality and Buddhist ideas about how we should live the good life, what is the good life, has both an objective part to it and a subjective part. So it's not just about my subjectivity, how I feel right now. It's actually how I affect you. And we constantly see that in the text. It's that that my my life is for the benefit of both you and me, not just my practice for the benefit of me. That my speech and my action uh, helps you in, in your spiritual life as well as helping me. And that that's very important because Buddhism can sound like a very selfish kind of endeavor. I'm just kind of getting on with my enlightenment. It's all empty. There's no self. Leave me alone. Feed me, and I'm getting enlightened. But actually, no. I was thinking about, or reading about how, let's say, Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism really emphasized the compassion a lot, hasn't it? Said this kind of bodhisattva ideal where you have that, you know, my, I'm going to delay my own enlightenment until everyone else is enlightened, which for a Theravada thinks, well, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. Uh, but it's, it's not like a factual reality, it's an attitude an attitude that the Mahayana is very, very strong about. Um, we tend to kind of emphasize compassion, sure, but there's a lot of emphasis on emptiness, not-self, and, and that kind of language can sound very nihilistic. It's not, when you realize what that's about, but it can sound very, very nihilistic. And the activation of the heart towards deep compassion needs to be remembered. That, that's, that, that is a, a very, very, very important part of our objective life. You know, not just about me doing some kind of metta bhavana when I'm in my kuti, but actually the way I, I speak with you, relate with you. And so there's a, there's a kind of objective standard. And, and that takes mindfulness. It takes mindfulness. So to actually observe the way I speak with you, and then to see, well, what, 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 wait, wait, what is that doing? What is that doing to you as a human being? Not just me and my, my, what I want to say to you, but how am I affecting you? 
you know, affecting you for your benefit, uh, for your uh, well-being. And that takes awareness. I have to get out of my own trip. I have to have empathy. I have to put myself in your shoes and watch you reacting to me. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. that, that I, don't, I don't just tell you stuff, but I watch how I speak with you and I try to promote some sense of goodness in you and me. Now, life isn't always so clear. Obviously, sometimes we disagree about things and we, we say things which are you know, maybe off because of the heat of the moment or whatever. But that attitude that, that, and that perception that you are a human being, that you, you want to be free from suffering as I want to be free from suffering, is very important for getting away from fear. Because fear is this kind of alienating, separating energy of where I'm always criticizing you or I'm afraid of you, I'm afraid of what you're saying to me and this sense of very lonely kind of energy where it's empathy that entering into your life through my mindfulness, my awareness, how does that affect you is a, is a very uplifting quality and, and ultimately is, is the kind of heart you need for liberation. If, if you think about like the energies of alienation, where I'm always separate from you, I'm always judging you and afraid of you and shy of you or or needing to dominate you or whatever, that's going to be part of the way I, I operate in my meditation life. And that, that way of operating, of not really being open and empathetic to the way things are, doesn't work. Whereas empathy, that kind of entering into uh, the life of another person by putting yourself in their shoes is also the way we have to enter into our own suffering. Because only when we, when we manifest or allow our own suffering to manifest can we understand it. And only when I say, well, what is it really like to be suffering right now, to be afraid right now, to be fed up right now, to be ill and physically ill? Well, what's, what's that experience really like? That's mindfulness. And that is compassion too. Mindfulness has that sense of engaging fully with the heart and with attention into the stuff that we experience as human beings. So our objective life and the way we live with each other is not separate from our subjective life, it can't be. So to actually engage those kinds of perceptions, that to actually like take part of your meditation and, and, and dedicate it to the well-being of, of others is, 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 is beautiful. And so when I do that, I'm sure you all do it, where you just go and you, you sit and start your meditation by thinking about, by bringing to mind, bringing to your heart, each person in the monastery. From the lay people, anagarikas and monks, you just name them and say, may you be well, may you be well, may you be well, may you be well. And what does that do? What does that do? Well, it connects you. It connects you. Whereas the other, judging, uh, to, uh, you, you were late again, didn't wash that cup, uh, didn't fit you, you left before it was finished, the curry had too much pepper, <laughs> too much chili, <laughs> that, kind of, that, that kind of mind which is always you know, criticizing and judging, that will also turn back on you, because right? it's just about mind continuum, so the mind which is always objectively judging and criticizing and all will turn back to you and it'll be a very unhappy state of mind. But to really understand ourselves, you know, to understand others is to understand ourselves, isn't it? It's the same, it's the same attitude, it's the same attitude we're, we're bringing forth. And these are all 
you know, the ways we function with each other. Now, now living in a monastery, we have ideal conditions. Just, I mean, today it was stunning, wasn't it? The sunshine and the moon and even the hunters, I was happy for them in some kind of strange way. <laughs> May you be well and happy and not kill anything. But just, just the kind of beauty of this place and the good friendships we have so that when we suffer, we can't blame anyone. I was saying that at lunchtime. That's the beauty of having a perfect place. <laughs> that when suffering arises, you can't really, you can't really blame anyone. And if you do, you need to wake up. Because it's not going to get any better. In terms of humanity, you know, you, unless you think that, unless you think that you can get a whole bunch of arahants hanging out together, maybe they argue too, who knows? I don't know. But, you, you know, you, you just bring to mind that, that the good fortune we have to be here. Not that I'm bragging about this place, right? Not that. But somehow, we as, we as human beings have a lot of goodness now that we're here, that we have the requisites, that we have enough health to be contemplating, that we have political systems, economic systems, weather, all the rest of it. Well, we can look at our, our discontent, we can look at our fears, we can look at our boredom, we can look at our lustful tendencies, or our biases, our prejudices. We can look at those as objects, because there's nothing threatening us. We're cared for by, by the lay folk that support us, and, and we're cared for by a whole tradition that we're a part of. So there's this kind of beautiful opportunity to really make conscious the discontent of the mind. Not to deny it and say, oh, I should be grateful. Bhante gave that talk yesterday. I should really love that curry. You know, it was really good curry. And that's not it. That's not about a should be. It's more about awakening to perceptions which are skillful and awakening to perceptions which are unskillful, abandoning the latter, developing the former. It's not, it's different than should be. Should be's are, are not reflective. They're egotistical, aren't they? I should be different, I should have a bigger nose, or I should have a smaller nose, or, <laughs> or uh, you know, I should really like everyone, and I should really be inspired to be here, and, you know, and I really should like the abbot especially, and da-da-da-da-da, but that's, that's not reflection, that's e- egotism. I should be this or that. Reflection is seeing, seeing a perception or a thought or an opinion come up into consciousness, recognizing it objectively, seeing that's unskillful, I'm not going to go there. Or seeing that's skillful, I'm going to try to make that stronger, I'm going to try to develop that in my life. That's reflection. So the abandonment of, of unskillfulness is not a, it's not like a, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, oh, you're terrible for having those perceptions, or those opinions are just terrible. That, that's not it. It's just seeing a perception arise, not going there. That's different. So I have a... Maybe I wake up and I'm, I'm in, a, in a bad mood and I, and I look at someone and they, you know, they left their shoes askew or something really profound like that. Or <laughs> and, and my mind wants to be critical. And I can know oh, that's critical mind. I'm not going to go there. I'm just not going to go. And the mind wants to bring it up. No, I'm not going to go there. I know, that's just a foul mood. Just just be patient with a foul mood, it'll change. That's that's more like contemplation, skillfulness, right thought, 
and the right speech and right action. Whereas, oh, you know, I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't be so critical, I shouldn't, shouldn't be so judgmental. That's not reflection, that's just simply, again, ego thought. And, and so the, the life of reflection is, is one of constantly awakening with empathy to your own predicament and then cultivating, cultivating, cultivating bhavana, uh, developing that which is wholesome and good and beautiful. So the eight precepts are kind of based upon, like the eight precepts are partially moral and partially renunciant. So the one about no beautification, no adornment and, and no entertainment, there's nothing immoral about wearing an earring or a nose ring or uh, whatever ring you want to wear. Uh, it's not wrong to listen to Leonard Cohen, uh, but in a monastery we kind of simplify things. So there are rules which are renunciant and rules which are which are around moral moral precepts. But all in all, you, we you, we have a lifestyle that we can um, we can kind of ride in this vehicle together because we all have an agreement. This is how we're going to live. This is how we're going to practice. And to, to have enough empathy and kindness towards yourself to see that the unskillful thoughts you have are not your, not your fault. You know, it's, you're not wrong to hate someone. Just don't go there. You're not wrong to, to want, you know, greed is not wrong. Just don't cultivate greed. It's not wrong to feel nervous or anxious. Just don't cultivate nervousness and anxiety. Don't cultivate that. Cultivate the opposite. So it's the, the compassion that we speak of, or the empathy we speak of, is like recognizing, yeah, this path is tough. We have we have uh, habits which are not all that great uh, sometimes, and, and we have skill, uh, and the, and the, and the skillfulness is is good to cultivate. But it's not wrong to to feel these things because these are part of nature. So when we look at nature, all we're always seeing is that nature is a kind of momentum of stuff and that we can uh, change the momentum. You know, we can put in factors and ideas and, and, and perceptions to change the momentum towards enlightenment, towards peace and freedom, uh, if we're mindful, if we're careful. All right, I shall leave that for your reflection. <coughs> Sadhu Karang Nadamase Sadhu